Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. And today we have with us another very special guest, Alyssa Rockwerger. Hi, Alyssa, how are you? Thanks for having me, Cindy. You're welcome. We are really lucky to be able to spend some time with Alyssa today and to to talk about her role as a product manager and responsible machine learning and AI and kind of lessons that she's learned. But let me first tell you just a little bit about Alyssa, and then we will dive right into the conversation. Alyssa is a customer-driven product leader who's dedicated to building products that solve hard problems for real people, and she delights in bringing products to market that make a positive impact for her customers. She has a lot of experience in scaling products from concept to large-scale ROI, and she has uh, proven her mettle at both startups and large enterprises. She's worked in numerous product leadership roles for machine learning, from organizations such as Figure8, where she was VP of product, later acquired by Appen, And uh, there she was the VP of AI and data. And she also, in her tenure, has been a director of product at IBM Watson. Recently, she left that space to pursue her passion in the healthcare space, which is incredibly important right now with everything going on with COVID. And she serves as a director of product at Blue Shield of California. So, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us today. I love the book that you wrote um, with your co-author, Wilson Peng, who I know is still at um, Appen. Fabulous book, very practical, I think, in its application, provides a lot of guidance for just people in business generally that are trying to figure out how to implement AI and machine learning. But I got to back up and just ask you if you can share with our audience how you got into this space, because I don't think you're an engineer or a data scientist by profession. So tell us about yourself. Well, thank you so much. Um, You know, the goal of the book is really to be pretty broad um, and to appeal to folks who are actually trying to use this stuff in real life. Right, Um, right. But to to back up a little bit, um, I sort of wrote the book for myself a little bit, um, you know, dating back. Um, I have a a liberal arts degree. I'm dyslexic. I I don't, I'm married to a computer science engineer, but um, I'm certainly not one myself. Um, You know, I uh, pursued an American studies uh, degree in photography. Tech was sort of on my radar, but not something that I was uh, particularly drawn to. Um, And I ended up with a job at a tech company and customer service department, actually. Um, And so I was on the phone talking to people who wanted to cancel um, and they were angry (laughs) and frustrated with the product. Um, And so I sort of quickly figured out that product management was a thing. Uh, And I learned about, you know, what it was to be able to sort of concept and and build and um, ship things into a production environment. Um, And so that's sort of what what led me into tech and what led me into product management. And um, later on, machine learning and AI is a really powerful tool in order to enable um, really big change at scale. 
Yeah. You know, I love your story and I love that we're going to be able to talk today about what this looks like from a product management, you know, perspective, because that is a role in today's world. And it's a really, really important role in terms of making sure that it works right in an organization. But I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of people still understand it. Um, and I think it is something that students in particular need to get more familiar with. And I, I think there's an idea out there in a lot of people's minds that implementing AI in an organization is really just, that's what those IT people do. That's what folks like your husband do, you know, those computer engineers. Those fancy engineers, yeah. That's what they're there to do. And, you know, we can't begin to, I don't understand what they're saying, or I don't know what it means, just let them deal with it. And so they don't really think that it applies to them, right, in their role as as just a business uh, leader. So, you don't have a technical background or necessarily, you know, um, didn't start out with technical job responsibilities. So, so help us understand, is it really just an IT problem or a project from your perspective or what role do others like yourself have to play? Yeah. When I, um, so I think product management is often uh, a technical role or, or should be. Um, you should become technical enough to kind of be dangerous. It does not mean that you need to enroll yourself in computer science, you know, one-on-one. Right. I have taken some of those Coursera classes myself to, you know, help me understand the lingo and understand kind of some frameworks, but I certainly don't code or, you know, you certainly wouldn't want me to. Uh, <laughs> thing. Um, I, I think what I would say is that um, often business people are pretty intimidated by that side of the business yeah. or think yeah. that it is unsurmountable to start to understand. And I can tell you, I have a photography degree, liberal arts. It's not unsurmountable. Um, it's really just like anything else. It takes some dedicated time to understand, you know, what the words mean, understand some structures and dig in. And often, at least in my case, I had some really wonderful colleagues who, you know, took me aside and would whiteboard things or would spend half an hour with me before or after a meeting, right? breaking something down. Um, but it's absolutely critical that business leaders um, of all kinds, right? Whether or not you sit in legal or privacy or, you know, in a line of business ownership role, understand enough of how the technology works in, un- in order to understand how it can unlock opportunities or mitigate risks or introduce risks, if not uh, managed properly into what you do manage directly, right? And what you do control. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's hard for people to get over that hump of being intimidated. And that often means that it's just delegated to someone else, but that actually leaves um, folks on the technical side frustrated, annoyed that they can't ever launch anything because it truly takes a team of people to mm-hmm. bring product to market, particularly if it has a machine learning or AI component to it. Yeah. Uh, and you need to be at the table. You need to be asking questions around Where's the data from? You know, how is this going to be applied? What is the risk? What's the, what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if we misclassify something? Um, those types of business questions um, mm-hmm. are so critical. Um, and maybe to kind of make it relatable for a second, you know, most people um, interact with machine learning every day, right? Whether or not you do a Google search or you have Alexa or Siri in your house, um, I find myself arguing with Alexa. <laughs> she doesn't understand me. Uh, great service. Love that my engineer of a husband has hooked her up to turn on lights and, you know, all of a very connected home. But when I'm asking her to 
play a song for my toddler, you know, baby shark, she <laughs> often doesn't understand what I've asked her. Um, um, and that is an outcome of a machine learning product, right? That's applied to me as a yeah. business, uh, you know, as a regular consumer. Yeah. Um, that is around accuracy of speech recognition, right? Right. To women of my age in California, right, where I live. And so whether or not the machine learning sort of system underneath took me and my situation into consideration of me wanting to play Baby Shark for my kid, right? Or was the training data something else, right? Was it optimized for people wanting to play rap songs or was it optimized for people wanting to you know check the weather because that's what a different cohort would be so um just to, to circle back a little bit the business lens on it can really yeah. help shape what are the use cases and what are the applications and that's so critical for um, getting the underlying uh, systems working kind of helps get it get it right on the front end instead of you know trying to fix it on the back end um, but there's always that need for speed, particularly with tech. I think that makes, you know, that a challenge and makes roles like what you play all the all the more important. So what do you think are some of the most important aspects of being a successful product manager? I can imagine there are people that are going to listen to this episode and wonder, wow, how do I do that successfully? That sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what are those? You know, what I'll say about when I'm hiring and I'm hiring for my team right now, you know, I'm always looking for people who can do forest and tree thinking. Right? Mm. So do you understand the really big picture of what the business outcomes are or the market ecosystem that we're playing in or the strategy that we're trying to achieve? And can you zoom into the particular tree or very small detail that we're talking about uh -huh. um, that is going to help kind of unlock um, and connect dots for us to be able to see the forest. So I'm always looking for people that can zoom out and zoom in and pivot between those worlds easily. Um, yeah. which is, it's hard to do. Um, and it, it's, uh, it, it's a skill that takes practice and a muscle yep. that needs to be developed over time. Um, and it also takes experience um, in a particular space often mm -hmm. um, to know what all the dots are in the forest, right? Um, and to be able to kind of connect dots. Um, I also look for people who are adaptable and can communicate really successfully between different types of humans. Um, in a product management role, you don't manage anyone often. Um, you're right. often sort of managing stakeholders that right. uh, matrix kind of support um, support you. Yeah. And you need to be able to convince people to do stuff yeah. for you and communicate the why really effectively. And talking to an engineer is probably a different uh, type of communication than it is talking to a designer or talking right. to a partner or talking, you know, up to executive management. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. We're good at pivoting um, and reading rooms and, and reading sort of emotional cues. And you know what, that's another, that's another learned skill. That's, that's not easy to be able to communicate to several different stakeholder groups who all sort of like it's Mars talking to Venus when you're talking sometimes about, you know, HR versus the, the IT folks or the computer oh, right. engineers, you know, so having somebody who sits at the juncture of being able to speak to both in a way they understand is a really special skill. And I also, something I really want to put a fine point on what you said is this ability to zoom out and see the, the forest, but also the tree. You know, I think 
think that's different today than it used to be when people started out in business in that um, it used to be, you know, you, you start with your little project and you do your little thing and it's down here and you don't worry so much about all the rest of it. That's, that's, you know, managed by somebody else. And I think in this dispersed kind of world that we live in today in this tech world and with things moving so quickly and disruptive technologies, it's different. You do need people who can understand up here, yeah. which they may have thought they weren't going to need to do in their careers for another 10, 15 years, right? That's going to be somebody else's problem, not theirs when they get out. But when they start, actually, they do have to be able to understand that and then apply it to the, the small you know, issue down here. That's different, I think. So I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that yeah, one out. I, I can give a, maybe a concrete example of that um, yeah. machine learning space. Um, and I talk about this story in my book, which is um, I was, it was the first machine learning product I was launching. It was visual recognition um, at IBM. And it was a simple API where, you know, you gave it a picture and it came back with a label. Um, and the team had sort of a beta product um, when I showed up and I was, I didn't understand what, the, what I was doing at all. And I was trying to understand how does this work? Right, well, right. How do you get these labels? How do you know if the label's correct or good or accurate? And I kind of got a runaround um, of different sort of technical people giving me different answers that frankly, I didn't really understand. And I was kind of trying to like, what do you mean it's accurate? Like, how do you know? Like, how, why is, why are you calling this picture a dog versus a puppy, right? Like which one, how do you know? And anyway, we eventually sort of settled on an answer that I could sort of barely understand, but you know, <laughs> I, these were really smart people that, you know, right. knew a lot about this. I was like, okay, sure. And, um, we were about to, we were making a bunch of investments in accuracy and um, we sort of developed a system that we thought was more accurate significantly by the metrics that we were running on the previous one. We were a few days before launching and uh, one, someone came to me um, and he said, we can't launch this. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? Like we've invested months of work, all right, this right. time, we all agreed, it's better. Um, and he had put a picture into the system um, and he'd gotten back the label of loser. And, and the image that he had put in was actually an image of someone in a wheelchair and it tagged um, it with loser. And so, you know, I was like aghast. We were all like, oh my God, this is objectively horrible, right? Stop the presses. And the dot that we were connecting this to was like IBM's massive like AI strategy could end up with a terrible New York Times or Wall Street Journal article yeah. about how you know, bias and irresponsible we are and, you know, terrible for building right. a system that, you know, objectified people with disabilities as loser, right? Like that yeah. does not align with the big picture values. Right. But it was this tiny little one label on one non-money making, you know, sort of yeah. beta product that could have really derailed a major strategy, right? Yeah. The company. Um, yeah. So, you know, we caught it, we didn't launch this, we, you know, we made a bunch of fixes, um, but that's the type of forest and tree thinking. Um, yeah, that's a great example. And it really is because of the emergence of tech. Like, I don't think that those, there were nearly as many issues in the past that could have affected the company at that level um, when you're working on one little project down here. But when you're dealing in the tech world and everything is so transparent, right? And yeah. dispersed, it, it can really have a, a, an outsized effect um, that we didn't used to see. So you just hit on something else that I think is super important when you're talking about um, um, responsible AI, responsible machine learning, and the skills that you need to make sure that that happens. Um, and, and as you told that story, you um, hit on the point of speaking up 
right? And that comes up in a number of different contexts. You know, people seeing somebody doing something they think is unethical, or, you know, in this case, somebody came to you and, and had the courage to say, we can't do that because, you know, this is the tag came back and said loser. But speaking up is, is really hard, particularly for some people, if you're not in a supportive environment that, you know, kind of appreciates that. And even if you're not, if it's your responsibility to raise it, you have to figure out how to do it. So how have you mastered that skill and what tips do you have for others to be able to to use that because it really can stop a lot of trains from derailing you know a boss of mine told me uh, a couple of weeks ago he was like those you're fearless and i was like i don't think i'm fearless um but yeah. I, I do think there's that's an, uh, a skill i've learned over time which is uh-huh. when you're speaking up particularly in something that's controversial or you know might be a little sensitive or or not well received I always like to start with making sure I really understand down right I I understand the problem um, and I am sure of my facts a little bit so I'm on kind of sure footing when I'm bringing something to someone else's attention yeah and I've maybe asked a peer about it or you know run it by some people who are like-minded and gotten a couple of data points that confirm like, oh, I'm on the right path here. Yeah. And so I think being sure of yourself or being confident in your understanding of the problem or your convictions um, is always a good prep um, if you're nervous to bring something up. And it's sort of like, nope, I do understand this and I understand it well enough and I'm pretty sure about it. So that when you're speaking up, you um, are crisper in what you're communicating and you've had a little bit of practice with uh, audiences that are not scary, right? Like, yeah. you know, and this could, you can even practice, you know, with your loved ones, with your husband. Right, right, or, right. You know, um, people who are sort of closer to you that can poke holes or ask questions that That's you right. might not have thought of. That's um, right. So I always start with, um, with that before Mm -hmm. I'm going to escalate something, Mm -hmm. Um, but also uh, bringing something up in the context of why it matters, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't escalate, hey, this tag came back for this image as loser. I brought up, hey, this matters because I'm concerned about this bigger consequence or issue. How are we going to mitigate it? I'm worried we haven't thought this through, have you, right? And and be open to, you might not have enough context, right? It might've been, oh, actually there was a whole mitigation strategy I wasn't aware of. And there was some in place for that someone else had thought of. And so it's being open to things that you might not be aware of or or Um, and, and, and doing it in a way that's just uh, unemotional, right, or, or simple, right, and just sort of like, here's the data I have, here's the conclusion it leads me to, and, you know, what do you think? Uh, yeah. And yeah. just not being afraid of, uh, like, what's the worst that can happen? They say, yeah. I disagree yeah. with you, or you're wrong, or, you know, and then you can yeah. have that conversation. I think some those are all incredibly good points, and and it, it takes time to learn that skill. You very eloquently um, described it, and there are a lot of lessons and nuggets in what you just said, but I think a lot of people's fear is, oh my God, people are going to think that's a dumb question. I can't ask that in front of others. Have you ever yeah. felt that way, or have others said that to you, or what happens when you raise a question, then what's the sidebar conversation after the meeting? <laughs> yeah, I um. I know that's a fear a lot of people have. Um, and I think 
you know, it's super valid and it, it comes from perhaps being outside of your comfort zone a little bit in a conversation. Um, the, uh, the old CEO of IBM, uh, Ginny Rometty, she used to say yeah. over and over again, she's like, uh, growth and comfort never coexist. Um, and so to be outside of your comfort zone is actually, you know, a positive thing a little bit it means that you're growing. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I try to reframe those situations, not as you're asking a dumb question, but you're growing a little bit, you're outside of your comfort zone yeah. you need to learn. And yeah. so, you know, sometimes, um, taking notes for yourself in a meeting and, mm -hmm. you know, paying someone in the background or going to your boss afterwards or having a list of things you didn't understand if you don't want to say it in a meeting in a large context, I think that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, I also think you can disarm things a little bit, say, oh, maybe this is a dumb question. And that kind of um, provides the space a little bit for people to, you know, you to be in a learn mode. Um, yeah. Nine times out of 10, other people in the meeting have the same question. And I it's know. Not well understood, right? <laughs> That's what I found. Those little ways of um, uh, couching yourself can put you at ease that people are going to say, oh, that's a stupid question. Yeah. Um, but most of the time, someone else has the same question too, because it isn't well explained. Right, 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 right. And you walk out of the meeting and more times than not, somebody leans over and says to you or, or catches your arm and says, you know, or pings you online okay. afterwards. I'm so glad you asked that. I had the same question. Exactly. I didn't understand that either. I'm so glad. Mostly I that's what happens. <laughs> I know. Mostly that's what happens. So let's, let's talk about some more specific examples of how ethics can come into play when an organization is trying to roll out um, AI, machine learning, and trying to do that in a, in a responsible way. And there's, seems like there's just tons of examples. Um, some I think are riskier than, than others. And, and I want to get your opinion on that in, in terms of uh, kind of the spaces they play in. But can you share with us your take on some of the recent examples that came to light, like Apple credit card? You know, that's one that I think a lot of people have heard about. It was certainly on my mind um, in listening to you talk about, you know, bias with your example earlier at Watson. Um, bias was essentially the issue that came out in this one, too. Um, but what, what do you, what do you think really happened there? And, you know, is ethics different from legal when you think about it and look at that, look at it that way and is right and wrong? How do you really figure that out? Yeah, sure. So for people who aren't super familiar, um, with the Apple credit card situation, I, I provide two seconds over sure. to Apple and Goldman Sachs uh, several years ago, they got together saying, Hey, we're going to, you know, release this new credit card. Um, and very quickly after launch, um, some sort of famous folks, uh, started tweeting, um, hey, you know, why is my wife getting approved for far less than I'm getting approved for? We share finances. Um, and that kind of created a bit of a storm and um, an investigation um, into it, actually, um, from a sort of regulatory perspective of were, were, were they administering credit unfairly? Right. Were they um, allowing certain people, you know, women or men to be um, unfairly advantaged or disadvantaged? Um, and, and the sort of what happened there, right, was that the model was created behind the scenes with, if you look back at, I don't know exactly how many years of data, but, you know, credit history. Um, and in that case, actually, they removed gender from what was being looked at. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, they had a lot of different other attributes that they looked at in order to say, hey, here's the credit worthiness that we think you know, we're going to award you that you can handle. Um, and they removed gender, but what they 
like if you look back at credit card history in the United States, it's biased. Men are uh, have far uh, greater um, ability to spend credit than women. And there's a much more recent history of um, women having uh, significant spending power. And so not surprisingly, there was bias in the data, even if you removed gender as a field itself, right? So by the jobs that people had or titles that they had or spending histories or lots of other sort of resulting attributes that were different between male and female, if you look at just history. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the the team actually, um, in that case, when they launched, they, they hadn't controlled for it. And so they actually hadn't tested for it either. So they didn't know mm -hmm. off the bat that men or women were being unfairly um, advantaged or not. And when they look into it, they actually, it was a long story, it just um, came out more recently that um, there was an actual sort of violation of fair credit laws or standards, um, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't um, ethical or, or good business, right? Yeah, it was, it was right. A total negative, like black stain for Apple and Goldman Sachs for uh, a while, which what and it could have been a really like positive launch and like a new financial, you know, car and opportunity for the companies. Um, and meanwhile, there was all this negative press and like regulatory investigation, which is like, not what they needed. Right. Um, and they couldn't explain easily the algorithm. Right. Okay. That was the issue. So there right. wasn't transparency right. into it. Um, right. That actually was sort of the missing business opportunity that as a yeah. business person, you can say, hey, how does this model work? Can we explain it? Right. That's a critical piece of going to market. Yeah. Um, and I think that is one of those uh, ways that business folks can easily add value by like really poking saying, okay, but you know, explain this to me and don't explain it to me using math, explain it to me in human terms that I can understand. And are there charts or graphs or um, ways that we can actively look at and measure things I care about, right? Like gender mm -hmm. balance or racial balance or, you know, other things um, that are probably interesting to you. It doesn't have to be regulated in order for that to be good practice. Yeah. So that might be a space where, you know, folks from HR or somebody from, you know, legal or somebody from, you know, a compliance organization may raise those questions, yeah. um, you know, back to the product developers and, and help them actually think about it and, and, and test it and try things out on the front end as opposed to on the back end. Because you're right, at the end of the day, the company's lost trust. And right. that's what it's all about. Once you lose trust, it's really hard, sometimes impossible to ever get it back. Right. Like my little thing with, um, you know, going back uh, to the story about um, the loser tag, right? Like, right. Was that you know, was, was that going to create a legal issue for IBM? Maybe, you know, probably Maybe. not, right? But um, it was definitely going to create a press you know, problem and it was definitely going to be a trust problem and definitely going to kind of create sort of a, an ethical issue. Um, and just because it's legal doesn't mean it's you know, good or okay or good business. Yeah, yeah. You really have to, that, that, that puts a fine point and, and draws a distinction between kind of legal and, and ethics and using things responsibly. But let me ask you this, Alyssa, do you think that um, all applications of machine learning or artificial intelligence are equal on kind of the risk scale? I mean, what comes to my mind is, you know, things like targeted advertising, you know, so that, you know, I, 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 you know, I live in the middle of the U.S. in the Mid-South, and so I'm probably not going to need a parka like somebody in Alaska would need. I mean, but but the only way that those, assuming I allow myself to be targeted <laughs> for advertising, if I say yes, does that 
Like, does that create the same kind of risk in your mind or how should somebody really think about that? Not at all. Um, there's a huge spectrum of risk, right? And so, you know, advertising fairly low on the risk spectrum, you know, I don't know, there's definitely risk there, um, but you know, it's not zero, but it's fairly low. Yeah. Um, things like healthcare applications, really high risk, things like high. legal applications, military applications, financial applications, um, you know, so uh, you know, I'm in the healthcare space. Um, there was a study um, actually that was uh, came out recently uh, last year and applied uh, AI for healthcare. Um, Harvard did a sort of business case about this. Um, they wrote a paper and, uh, you know, basically what they found is that protocols that are currently in place for scoring people with cardiovascular risk uh -huh. are based on 80% data from folks who are Caucasian. Um, and so it doesn't actually apply as successfully to people who are not white. Um, and so there's sort of active bias going on in the healthcare space right now when you are scoring people for cardiovascular risk because the data that's being used to score is from white people, right? And it wow. doesn't apply equally to Asian people or African-American people or Latino people. Right, right. Um, and so that's the type of application that to me is much more damaging, um, yeah. and much riskier, right? Because literally someone is, you know, at risk of a heart attack, right? And you're right. scoring them and giving, administering medical care based on biased data, right? That's gonna perform well for white people, but not black people. Yeah, and I would imagine uh, that could bleed over into the insurance space too, because models are generated for, you know, how much to charge somebody for, for insurance based on what they think their risks are or are not. And it would just get, it would just get, it would just get yeah, out. luckily the Affordable Care Act makes that illegal yeah. too, yeah. Um, to, to do that anymore. But, um, it, you know, we, you, you can't um, price insurance anymore based on pre-existing conditions. Um, but the, the, there are, um, th there's real challenges in the healthcare space around administering that. There's also real challenges in like hiring. Uh, or yeah. Amazon got into some hot water um, several years ago around, they were scoring resumes. Um, and they uh, sort of realized um, that men were being much more favorably passed through and scored um, than women were, um, mm -hmm. as a simple example. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also issues with being applied in the legal space. Um, so there was a, a ProPublica expose um, on a company called Compass um, that has an algorithm for recidivism. Yeah. Um, so the, it's scoring people on how likely are they to reoffend, um, and it just the sort of report showed that it was um, likely to score uh, someone who was black uh, at a rate of reoffending at a much higher rate than someone who was white, given sort of equal um, data and backgrounds around uh, what their history was. Mm -hmm. um, so applications like that, I think, are are pretty damaging and, and yeah. very unethical. Um, and the legal sort of framework and, and regulatory system hasn't caught up yet mm. to the sort of sophistication of the technology. So we're way out ahead of the, the legal framework here um, yeah. from a technology perspective. So if I were to step back and ask you, what are some of the lessons learned from some of these situations that we've talked about? It would sound like you would put into that bucket, well, know the risk um, kind of area that you're dealing in. Is it high risk or is it low risk? And kind of keep that in mind. Make sure you have disparate people at the table so that they have differing opinions. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, also you've got to really understand um, um, not just the area that you're dealing in, but what is going to kind of be the specific application 
for it, kind of slow down, think about it, do it on the front end. What else? What are some of the other lessons? Yeah, all of that. And, you know, the book really goes through, it's meant to kind of be an answer to that question, right? Which is how do I do this successfully? How do I do this well? Um, and, and we sort of break it down into different chapters, like Got team, it. team is one. Um, yeah. Absolutely. We spend a lot of um, time in the book talking about the importance of data and mm-hmm. the provenance of the data and understanding where is the training data that is building this model coming from and does it reflect the use case that you're applying it to right yeah so i'll take voice recognition system like alexa um a lot of the data that it was used to train modern um speech recognition systems mm-hmm. was taken actually from government data from the 1980s of male newscasters reading the news aloud and that was sort of the early um development of speech recognition technology yeah now, that has nothing to do with me in my kitchen asking, you know, to play baby shark. I'm, I'm using different words. The acoustic environment is super right. different, right? That's a very different set of data and the training data doesn't reflect that. Um, and so that's an example of the disconnect that the business folks can really bring to the table of, wow. hey, here's how we're going to apply this in the real world. Here are the, the applications, here are the stakeholders, here's who's yeah. going to use and consume it. Right. Does the data match that? And matching, if you just do that and just match the the application and the data, you can get really far in terms of being a balanced um, and fair application. Yeah, that's another really important point about the role that I think product managers play uh, in making sure that it gets looked at that way. But let me ask you a more question on that for a product manager perspective. Um, Once you launch a product and your uh, product is successfully launched, does your job in there, in your mind as a product manager? (laughs) No, uh, pesky thing about product management is actually, you know, that's when the hard part uh, begins, (laughs) right? Which is that you actually have to have a sort of successful management and understanding how it's going, right? Do people like your product? Do they want to share that with someone else? Do they want to buy more of it? So, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of products, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And the goals of any product are sort of different, but um, launching with an ability to measure how it's going is yeah. so key. Um, yeah. YouTube actually does this really well. Um, so sort of a narrow example uh, is around sort of YouTube's algorithm for how do they take down content that is unsavory, right? So how do they remove content that uh, isn't appropriate, um, mm-hmm. from either a pornographic perspective or, you know, violence perspective or whatever. Right. Um, and they actually publish it. It's a transparency report. You can get it online and Google YouTube transparency report. And they, sh- they reflect back here is what we take down. Here's why we take it down. And here's who flagged it to take down. So the vast majority is actually flagged by their internal algorithms, but there's actually another portion that's flagged by users saying, Ooh, like, this content's bad, right? And then there's a very small portion that's flagged by regulatory or government folks. Yeah. And they reflect it back and, and they ask all the time for feedback around how is this going, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, over the last 10, 15 years, have built up a very sophisticated way of doing that. And they're constantly updating it, their model because what is violent today is not violent tomorrow, right? right. And, and the 
the content shifts. And that's the thing that's different about machine learning than anything else is that the content itself, it, it's alive, it, it moves. You know, what was true today is not true tomorrow. Um, you know, simple language changes and evolves. And as a product manager, you have to have a framework for taking advantage of that um, and for adapting to the way that um, culture uh, and language shifts. So now the lesson is it's a life cycle. It isn't getting a product to launch and then you move on to launch the next product, but it's a whole life cycle. Yeah, for, you got for the products. Yeah. Interesting. Alyssa, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and, and your thoughts about product management in this ever evolving space and how to implement it responsibly. And I always like to leave the audience though with one last nugget. Where do you go for additional information that you uh, on this topic that you would recommend to the audience? Are there good, maybe a podcast series or a good another book that you've read or, or anything like that that you could recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll recommend two things. Um, so on the product management side of it, if you're looking to do product management, I always recommend uh, Marty Kagan uh, wrote a book called How to Build Products Customers Love. I think it's a, an awesome um, entry point into product management um, and how to get good at that. Um, on the machine learning sort of bias side, there's a, a recent movie that uh, came out on Netflix called Coded Bias. Um, highly recommend it. Um, it's a really approachable way uh, to understand uh, the impact of bias. In, in yeah, there is. I've watched that one recently, and um, it's 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 fascinating knowing the story behind the story and how the whole bias issue kind of came to light really through uh, through a student at MIT's experience um, on a project. So great recommendation. That was good. Thanks, Alyssa. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.